turn in your Bibles to Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 17. One of my favorite lengthy sections of Scripture. I feel like I've said that like five or six times about other lengthy sections of Scripture, but gosh, so good. Love it when the Lord speaks. But this is another good one. Uh, as we continue in our series, Now What? A series on spiritual maturity. We've looked at spiritual maturity from a broad angle, looked at what it does, why we should want it, uh, what it accomplishes in our life, and last week and this week and in the weeks to come, we're looking now at the means of spiritual maturity. How do you grow? Last week we, we uh, looked specifically at renewing the mind, um, and now we're gonna take take it a little deeper by looking at Colossians 3, 1 through 17. And this is a long piece of, of scripture. We're not gonna be looking or spending a lot of time on every single line. Rather, I just wanna get a big picture of this whole thing, really a big picture of the Christian life after you follow Christ, after you uh, are born again. This is a big picture view of what it should look like. It is thrilling and difficult and exciting and scary all at the same time. Um, but it is, uh, it is a promise of God for us. And I'm just gonna start reading from verse one all the way through 17 and we'll, we'll pray and then we'll get into it. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, and you also will appear with him in glory, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just uh, 
Let's just take a second to be silent in the presence of God and then I'll, I'll pray. Lord, as we come before you with your word open, we pray that our hearts would be malleable in the hands of the Holy Spirit. We pray that Holy Spirit, you would not just prepare our hearts, but that you would prepare this room to usher in the full presence of the living God. We here exalt your holy name, Christ. We lift you high. We exalt you above all flesh, above every name that is named, knowing that every name situated underneath the authority of yours, every knee will be bowed at the footstool of Jesus Christ, and we now prepare the way, and we ask, Lord, that as the psalmist would pray, open wide the ancient gates and let the king of glory come in right now. Come into this place and be exalted above every name, above every man, above every woman, above every child, above every ideology, above every thought. We now take captive, according to your will, every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We ask that everything in this room would be subjected to the ruling authority of our King. You have your way, Lord. You rule and reign in this place. Rule over our thoughts and our minds and our hearts and our ambitions and our dreams. Rule even over our sin, the sin that so easily entangles us, rule so deeply and so effectively that we might leave this place with our sinful chains broken. And as we leave, we pray that we would leave behind you, leading an ascension, a parade of captives, praising your holy name. An army of men and women We want to do nothing in this life but follow in the train of your footsteps. We pray that Santa Barbara one day would be filled with people who are following you because it is the best thing that we have ever discovered. Pray that you would start right now with our, our hearts, our minds, and our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage of scripture starts with one of the heaviest conjunctions you have ever heard. If. I could spend a whole Sunday on if, but I'm not gonna get through all 17 verses, but if deserves its own sermon. Paul is making a classic if-then statement, and so there's a lot that he's assuming that we've already heard, chapters one, chapters two, and there's a lot that he is banking on in the chapters to come, chapters three, chapters four, chapters five. Actually, no chapters five, but (laughs) chapters four. This if-then statement kind of carves its way halfway through the book of Colossians, gluing one side to the other, gluing what is true, what we often call indicatives, what is true about the believer, to what is expected of the believer, combining them like glue. If this is true, then this is what we should expect of our lives. We might call that spiritual maturity. He's he's gluing them together. If this, then that. 
And to make this simple, like I said, I'm not going to go into every single line and word, but the main ideas in this passage, which is really threefold, if you have been raised, there's one idea, there's the second one, based on that, put off, therefore, or put to death that which is earthly in you, and then there's the third thing, the third idea that's glued to those, put on, holy and beloved, right, those things that belong to the kingdom of God, to God. Those three ideas are interwoven through everything that's being talked about. We don't have to talk about every single word to get the main idea. If you have been raised with Christ, it is expected of the believer to put off your old life and to put on your new life. Some of you may say, well, wait a minute. I thought that it was by grace that we were saved through faith and not by works or doing." And that would be true, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And not only that, but here in this book, in Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15, it's, death, it's Christ's death alone, his atoning sacrificial death that has done everything required for a person to be saved. In fact, we can't even, the, the way that Paul speaks would lead us to believe that we can't even lift a finger on our own behalf. Everything must be done by Christ's initiative towards us. It is not so much, John says, that you love him so much as it is that he loves you. You did not love him first, he loved you first. And in Colossians, we get the full picture of the reason for our salvation, God's grace alone. Paul says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that metaphor for uh, uh, the unprepared deadness, inability of the of, 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 our, uh, of our, our flesh and bodies, God made alive together with him. There it is, he did it. Having forgive us, forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against, us with its, uh, stood against us with its legal demands, all that we have done in hostility and in sin and rebellion against God, we continued to do until God stepped in the middle of our trajectory towards hell and said, this and no further shall you go by my grace. Changes your heart gets into your business, opens your eyes, you see Christ in a new, saving, thrilling, alluring, and attractive way, and you decide to follow him, that is the moment of what we might call regeneration or conversion. God, uh, Paul says God, at that moment, made you alive. And from that point forward, all of the benefits of salvation come along with it. You're forgiven of your trespasses, the record of debt that you uh, allotted to yourself, that empty, bankrupt resume of your own sin has been canceled with its legal demands. How so? Well, he carries on the metaphor. He says, he took it, set it aside, nailed it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. That's another word that Paul uses for demons and Satan. He disarmed demonic powers, put them to shame, triumphed over them, embarrassed them on the cross, uh, rid you of your disgrace and seated you in heavenly places with the most high. All of this on Christ's own initiative. And when that happens to you, when you, according to John 3, uh, to put it in another phrase that that, uh, Jesus used with Nicodemus, you have been born again, right? All of a sudden, you want to follow Jesus. Like the disciples throughout the generations before you, all the way back to Peter, James, John, Andrew, and the like, you now want to follow this Messiah you find so alluring, and so you do. And what, what are some of the things that you do? Well, you begin to renew your mind, like we, we talked about last week, right? 
Romans 12. You maybe be, uh, start getting into the scriptures, reading about the life of Jesus, digging into it, washing your mind with new thoughts. As we read uh, in Colossians, you're setting your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Uh, you're spending time with the Lord in prayer. You're spending time in community with people uh, that, that also love the Lord. You are, you, are, you are living out this life, beginning to live out your faith in Christ, wanting to follow him. But if you're like me or any human on the planet that wants to follow Christ, you get to this point maybe where you experience a wall, you hit a wall. Whatever that situation might look like for you, whatever uh, environment you find yourself in or problem that you hit, whatever it is, come to this place where you find a battle going on in the midst of you, in the depths of your being. It almost seems like there are two things happening within you. Yes, you've been renewing your mind, you have these new heavenly desires, but it's almost as if the rest of you does not want to go along with your renewed mind. We might call it the body or the rest of you. It's as if our new minds and our bodies, this is the terminology that that Paul uses, are seeming to coexist together but are fighting they're, in this, they're inhabiting the same space, but they hate each other. Or maybe that's too strong to use. They just, they don't agree with one another. They're fighting. And this is the problem of Christian living. Perhaps the problem that you have discovered or have been dealing with for decades. Maybe you feel like you're alone in it. This is harder than I thought it was. <laughs> My mind wants to do the right thing, but the rest of me just doesn't seem to agree in the moment that I need to do it the most. Am I the only one? No, you're not. You're up there with, with, you know, the Apostle Paul and Peter and the rest of us who really love Jesus but are battling inside. Whatever the, the situation may be, when that perfect set of circumstances arise in your life, you find that you're not able to act according to what you know to be right in that moment. Instead, uh, you do not live according to what you know to be a reality. Instead, you just keep falling into the same patterns, the same addictions, the same habits that you were living in before. Maybe you're asking yourself, why? Why is it like this? What am I doing wrong? For example, maybe uh, you keep telling yourself, I'm gonna be a better husband. I haven't been a really good one. I do this, 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 and this wrong. You tell yourself, I'm gonna be a better husband. Maybe you even read Ephesians chapter five and all the passages about being a, a husband that's just like Christ, you know? And then, but then you go home, and then you, you come home after work, you're already tired, you're a little bitter because of something that happened. Uh, maybe your attention span is short, and your, uh, 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 your temperament is short, and you fall right back into the same tendencies that you wanted to, to step away from. And you do this every day. You're asking, why can't I do this? Maybe you, uh, you have identity issues. You know what the Bible says about your identity. Maybe you read all of Ephesians chapter one and two and three and four and Philippians and all of these passages that speak about you being a new creation in Christ, about the old has been, has been brought down, the new has been brought in, and you are seated in heavenly places with Christ. You've been chosen, predestined, adopted. You are part of the family of God. All that you need to really experience a new identity. And you know these things in your mind, but then someone just says that one critical thing that destroys you. You're like, I know what the Bible says about me, but when people, when, when that person says that thing, 
it's almost as if that stuff just escapes my mind and I'm just devastated. I know it's right, I just can't live practically like that. Maybe you have rage problems. You tell yourself, yeah, it's a sin to let the sun go down on my anger. I'm not gonna do that, I'm not gonna sin in my anger. I know that, uh, you know, that uh, Christ came to save me from anger and release me from all that, blah, 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 blah. But man, when somebody does that thing to you, when someone betrays you, when someone says something, when someone uh, forgets something, when someone stabs you in the back, when someone gossips after you, it's almost as if all of that stuff leaves your head and you just fall into a fit of rage and you ask yourself in the aftermath, why do I keep doing this? I'm not gonna do it the next time. And then you do it again. Lust, self-control, pride, you can fill in the blanks or whatever it is, your personal thing. But perhaps you felt this way. Have you ever felt this way? I, I want to do what's right. I just find myself not being able to do that. I want to do the right thing, but I never end up doing it. In fact, when that moment arises, it sometimes feels like I, I can't do it. It's almost as if I have two options and I choose the easier one over the more difficult one every time and I can't understand why? Standard psychologist by the name of Kelly uh, McGonigal in a TED talk a couple of years ago called The Science of Willpower was speaking about something along this nature. She's brought up this old experiment that was done decades ago, I think in the 50s, involving a, a rat that was going through a maze and it was stimulated by these little light uh, pulses in its brain. And the scientists thought that this pulse was activating like the happy part of the rat's brain because every time that it would happen, uh, the rat would, would, would do whatever it was that the scientists want. In this case, it was to push this button. And they, the rat would continue to push this button every time and it would just stay there. It would neglect food, it would neglect sleep, all of these things, just pushing this button, the scientists concluded at that time, wow, this uh, the rat uh, seems to be chasing after its happiness. This is making it feel better. It's chasing after its happiness, the stimulation that's attracting the rat, and now it's seeking it out. And so the scientists concluded it's, it's making the rat feel happy, and that's what's driving it. But years later, they did the same experiment on human beings who could talk and explain things a little better. And they found that the human being, although it was doing the same thing, they were doing the same thing, were actually not happy. They were frustrated. They were still doing the action, but they were now frustrated with doing it. And through their uh, the prolonged research, they actually found out that the area stimulated in the brain of both the rat and the human was the area most commonly associated with addictions. Smoking cigarettes and drinking booze and uh, uh, whether it's porn or gambling or shopping, whatever it is, these uncontrollable habits. And they concluded after that, oh, we were wrong. They're not actually chasing after happiness. They can't control themselves and they differentiated between two different things in their research. Our, our, our proclivity to want something right now, immediately, often at the source of a lot of frustration, and the desire for something that's good for us in the long run. And they would conclude, our lapses in willpower often because we are battling between what we want right now and what is good later. And the two are at odds. We must choose, and we often choose the immediate. And they spelled out this battle in human beings. The Apostle Paul has been saying this for centuries. 
I delight in the law of God, Paul said. In other words, I delight in that thing that God has spelled out that is for our ultimate good in the long run. That which is good and perfect and acceptable. My spirit, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members or in the rest of me another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You hear what he's saying? There are two different options for me, and I keep choosing the the immediate one. And it's not even that I want that. I'm frustrated with myself. I want what God wants. I just can't choose what God wants. I keep choosing these things. What Paul goes on to describe in Romans is a battle between two things within you. One, he often calls the spirit, which is the seat of your decision making. It's your will. That's where all the decisions that you make come from, your spirit, your heart, whatever vernacular you want to use, the inner person or the inner man. So many words that Paul uses to describe it. The other one is the flesh. Now, at the risk of confusion, to clarify, when Paul speaks about flesh, you know, we have a a lot of different connotations of what he means by that. Some of you might think he's only speaking, like that's his term for lust and sexual immorality. It includes that, but it's far more. Some of you might, say, might think, well, flesh, you know, that means my skin and my bones and my knuckles and like the physical body. Well, it includes that, but it's also so much more. When Paul speaks about flesh, he's speaking, yes, about those things, but about the entire realm, which is your body. That includes your behaviors. That includes your decisions. That includes your actions. That includes your habits and the patterns of life. It includes all of those things. In the Christian, then, there's two things going on. There's two desires that are in conflict within you. In the Christian, because your your heart has been born again, you want what's good, but then there's something else in you that Paul calls the flesh that keeps choosing wrongly in the heat of the moment. It actually undermines your heart. It has more sway, more power. It is a stronger muscle, so to speak. And the explanation that we get over and over, especially from Paul, he always, talks, he always seems to talk about this conflict, is that when Jesus came to save people, he didn't just came to save the heart. He didn't just came to forgive you of your sins. He didn't even just come to renew your mind. He came to transform the whole person. He came to conform the whole person into the image of himself. That includes, yes, the mind, the things that you think, yes, the heart, the things that you want, but also the body, speaking of the things that you decide to do. He wants it all, man. He's after the whole thing. He's a jealous God. He made you in his image, and he wants every square inch of that kingdom, which is you. You may say, well, wait a minute. What does the body have to do with spirituality? I thought this was a series on spiritual maturity. What is, what's the body have to do with my spirituality? Everything. Everything in you is connected. Everything in you is connected. If the heart is, uh, to put it in a, one guy put it this way, is the executive center of your life. It's where all the commands come from. What you decide to do, it comes from your heart. You could think of it in that way. How do those things get carried out? Well, they get carried out in your body. Another way of looking at it is the body is your little personal kingdom, right? That's where your decisions get carried out. It is where what you want to happen can happen. 
Again, not just flesh and blood and bone and knuckles and elbows, but your decisions, your attitudes, uh, your behaviors, all of those things. It's your little kingdom. The body is where all your desires get fleshed out through decisions and actions. That's why Jesus had so much to say about the interplay between those two things. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They're connected. It's not what goes into the person that defiles them. It's not something that you eat. That's why all the ceremonial laws and all the food laws were done away with is because that wasn't actually the problem. The problem is the heart. Out of the heart flows all your behaviors. The heart was meant to rule and reign over the body. But here's what happens. Here's, the pro- here's where, it, where it gets shifted. After you continue to make decisions and actions over and over and over and over and over, this is, everybody knows this, right? They become habits. And habits are hard to break. Habits are the automatic responses of the body. And once they get situated, they actually can become more powerful than your willpower. They overpower what the heart and the will wants. And you think about this, a lot of the habits that we have are actually good. You know, when you learn to drive a car, the first time that you started to drive a car, uh, 16, 17, 18, whatever the age it is right now, when you first sit, set, your, set yourself into the car and you turn on that car for the first time, you're learning to drive a car, especially if it's like a manual transmission, it's awesome, you're like, okay, and you're thinking through every single step, right? You're thinking about it. Okay, I'm gonna put the keys in the ignition. Huh? I'm gonna turn it, right? <laughs> this is how my dad taught my siblings and I how to drive a car. He actually literally walked us through. He's like, okay, put the key in the ignition. Okay, dad, <laughs> you know? He's walking us through all of these steps and you're just nervous. I mean, you're like, okay, gotta do this and okay, gotta, okay, wheel, you know, well, one o'clock, uh, nine o'clock and all of that stuff that we never do after that anyway. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm gonna hit the, oh, there's three pedals, I only have two feet, how do I, and you're just thinking through all of this stuff, and you haven't even moved the car. You get onto the highway, and you're freaking out, just trying to remember everything, and blind spots, and there's a car, and someone's yelling at me, and honking, and there's a bunch of college students laughing at me right now, and you're just thinking through all of this stuff, but within two years, you're not even thinking about a single thing. You're just driving down the 101, just like, ah, da, 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 just thinking about things. You're doing it automatically. Do you think about the, every time that you breathe? No. It's a habit. Habits are actually good. God created us to have habits so that we could naturally do what we were designed to do. But we can also have bad habits, sinful habits, habits that we've inherited from our lives before Christ. Habits even after Christ, uh, that where we're just influenced by the surrounding culture, opposing worldviews that uh, are contrary to the kingdom of God, all of those things coming together to form how we act and they become ingrained in us as habits. Paul uh, calls that type of, uh, calls habits, he uses a word for that, he just simply refers to it as flesh. It's kind of a broad umbrella for everything, flesh. NIV translates his word for flesh as sinful nature. They're all kind of a part of the same thing. And he says in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. We could say it this way. I inherited a lot of bad baggage, <laughs> things that I can't get rid of. And then he goes on to say, for I have the desire to do what is right, my, my reborn heart, but not the ability to carry it out. My flesh is powerful. It overrides everything even the things that I want to do. Habits 
are extremely powerful. There's a researcher by the name of Wendy Wood who uh, followed around a couple thousand people to see how much of our daily behavior are, are habits. And what she found was that about 40 to 45% of the decisions we make every day aren't actually decisions, they're habits. In other words, almost half of your daily life is driven automatically. It's driven by something outside of the control of mere willpower. You have trained yourself to do things automatically. Almost half of your life is that way. Question is, in which way does it point? This is what's going on in many of us. We find ourselves at the mercy of these habits we have formed that we feel enslaved by, and we find ourselves needing something more powerful than our own habits and our own human proclivity to keep going in the same sinful direction. And at this point, on the heels of that passage that Paul says, I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out, we see a glimpse of the beauty of his very gospel when he says in the next verse, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Rhetorical question, which he answers himself in the next line. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. I needed to do all of that in order to get to our first verse. Now don't be scared. It's gonna just take a few minutes. Remember, just three things. Just gonna, just gonna jab them really quickly. If all of that is true, Paul then comes along and he says, Christ did all of this that is uh, necessary to free from the power of sin. Then he says in verse one, if then that is true about you, this is what you need to walk in. He gives us two things, right? If you have been raised, he essentially is gonna say, you get to put up a fight. You didn't, you didn't used to have the ability, whether you wanted to or not, you were enslaved to your own desires. Now, you have the ability to fight. If then you have been raised, to paraphrase, now you get to fight. You get to fight against those old tendencies. And he begins to start showing us what this looks like. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He begins to speak about the power of the resurrection that changes us. In other words, Christ didn't just die for our sins. He, ra- he was raised to new life so that we could have new life. He goes on to spell this out. He's not just, the resurrection of Christ isn't just for our physical resurrection, which it is, when, in the, uh, when Christ comes again, our physical bodies are raised from the dead, from the grave, 1 Corinthians 15, but a piece of that resurrection can also be tasted now. A piece of that new life can also be tasted now where we're raised from spiritual death to sin. Paul often called this newness of life whenever he spoke about it. For example, Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because Christ was raised, we can be raised right now too to live in a different way to break out of some of those old habits and tendencies. 
If you have been saved, you have also been raised, or another, another way to put it, is enabled to live a new life with new habits according to a new trajectory. You are no longer bound to what you used to live by. Goes on to say this in two ways. If then you have been raised, here's what you need to do, two things. Put to death these things and put on these things. There's a switch. You're removing, you're rearranging furniture, you're replacing the old with new stuff, right? Now I wanna be careful. You cannot just begin to develop new behaviors and new patterns of life and new habits in order to be saved. Doing good things will not make a dead person come to life. Good behaviors will not bring a dead person to life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter two said. You don't just need to do better things, you need to be brought to life. You need to be resuscitated by the spirit of the living God. But once you are brought to life, new actions and new behaviors and new habits all all of a sudden take on a new meaning. They're now brought with them a sense of power and enablement by the, power, by, the, by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So much so that Paul says in verse three, you have died to your own life and your new life is hidden with Christ and God. Therefore, put to death, verse five, look at verse five, put to death what is earthly in you, okay? In other words, you know, he goes through a list. This isn't like a, an exhaustive list. He's just naming off things of the old life Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, not that you can't, he's not saying you can't be passionate about things, but like evil passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, so on and so forth, anger, wrath, malice, slander, things that used to enslave us that we had no option but to do. He said now you can, they have been effectively broken, so begin to peel them off of you. Strip them from your way of life. Put to death what is earthly in you. I find it interesting that we're told in so many places that God has already done this for us, and yet we're also to do it with him. He's already effectively killed the power of sin and death in us, but we're also told to put death, or excuse me, to put to death what is earthly in us. In other words, sin used to rule your life. Now it must seek out your permission, and it will do that. Remember that passage in Genesis where uh, God says to Cain that sin is crouching at your door, knocking, and its desire is for you? It is waiting, it is longing for some real estate in your life. The devil is longing to have a foothold in your life. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians, uh, in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, don't prolong your anger because the devil is waiting for uh, to put a foothold in your life. Sin used to rule, now it must seek your permission. That's why Paul would later in Romans chapter six say, one who has died has been set free from sin. I love that. He'll go on to say in verse 12, so in other words, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make a mortal body to make you obey its passions. Isn't this beautiful? Paul's saying, you used to be enslaved to your sin, now it must ask for your permission. Don't let it reign. 
In other words, the, uh, the, the power of sin has been broken, but its presence is still there. And now we're being charged by God, don't let it have its way. Don't let it have permission. And instead of that, instead of this list of vices, this list of old patterns, we're then told not just to get rid of all the bad stuff, but to replace it with life and righteousness. Put on, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, verse 12, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. Uh, If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And he goes on, love and peace and perfect harmony and the word of Christ and wisdom and singing and thankfulness and glorifying God, all of this other stuff that marks what it looks like to experience the life of God. I want you to replace the old cancerous material of hell with the life-giving power and fruit of the spirit. That's what Paul is saying. And you can now. It is for you. You have been enabled to do so. Now you must walk in it. We're not just called to refuse sin's requests, but to say yes to righteousness, to present our members no longer to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but to, uh, uh, to God as instruments for righteousness, Paul would say. I've often heard these stories about POWs who are locked away in, uh, as prisoners of war, far away from scenes of battle, after and these stories go, countless stories in which the battle or the, the war had been won, but it had taken years for the, the news of that victory to reach some of the farther uh, POW camps. And what often happened in these situations was that even though the war, and, uh, even though the war had been won, many battles were being fought all around the, uh, the periphery. And even though the war had been won, it sometimes took years before news of that got to certain POW camps where they then were able to go free. And think about that for a moment. Everything that's needed to be done for that prisoner of war to be set free has been done, but it's taken years for it to get there. Even after victory has been declared, the enemy is surrendered, the POW is still in a place of imprisonment until something effectively has been done to open up those doors. This is exactly how it is for the believer. In the believer, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, sin has been decisively defeated on your behalf. However, it must also be decisively evicted from your life. Its power has been broken but it must be put away, to use Paul's language. And how do we do stuff like that? We just train according to our new life. We take on new practices that transform by the power of the Holy Spirit. We begin to, uh, to put it in a, love how Willard puts it. it, says we practice in easy situations what we know is right so that when the hard situations come, by that point, it's already a habit. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane who kept telling his disciples, I want you to watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray so that when the hour of testing comes, you will be ready. I want you to practice in easy areas, in easy environments what you know is right so that it becomes habit. So when the moment of testing comes, you won't be just skirmishing for the right thing to do. You will act automatically according to what you know is right. 
You will just stick the key into the ignition without giving a second thought to it, turn on the car, and go in a singular direction. This obviously involves having to know what our weak spots are. And sometimes, because they're weak spots, they're also blind spots. We don't know what they are. We need community for that. We need people to know what our weak spots are. We'll talk about community next Sunday and how that plays into spiritual maturity. But we find these weak spots, we begin to hone in on them, and we begin to train for righteousness in the areas in which we're most weak. Now, at this point, you might say, hey, I see what you're saying, but that's, that's not an attractive thing to me. <laughs> you're essentially saying, hey, I need to fight my internal cravings, the things that I want most immediately, my pleasures, my passions, I need to put them all away. I don't want to do that. I like my cravings, that's why I crave them. I like the pleasures in this life. I love doing the things that make me feel good in the moment. Why would I ever want to not do them? I want to live to be uh, uh, live for myself. I want to live in a sense of freedom and be my uh, be authentic and be true to myself and all of the stuff that we use to describe uh, free living. And you know, there's a there's a beauty in that that actually comes from the scriptures. We we see it in Galatians where Paul said, or Paul was speaking to these Christians who were burdened by all of these unnecessary laws. Get circumcised and, uh, uh, and observe this day and do this food law and do all of that and then God will be pleased with you. Paul comes along and says, no, you are, you are free in Christ. You're free by virtue of Christ's finished work. That, that freedom comes from, from Christ himself. But in our culture, that type of freedom begins to evolve from something that's healthy, you know, being yourself, to something where you might hear or experience this in our culture today. Freedom is a complete absence of constraint. Freedom means really just not any type of parameter, no boundaries, no restraint, not being constrained in anything that we desire to do in the moment. You may say, that's true freedom. But if you think about that, even just on a surface level, It just doesn't work. It doesn't work for nearly any sphere of life. Think about anything. Charles Taylor, uh, in his book, A Secular Age, put it this way. He said, to have any kind of livable society, some choices have to be restricted. Some authorities have to be respected, and some individual responsibility has to be assumed. Apply this to anything. In a marriage, there are basic rules. Don't sleep with anybody else. Right? It's not too much to ask, is it? In uh, music, at least Western music, there are basic rules, like you can only use these notes. In photography, there are certain mathematical formulas for coming up with an exposure, F over 16 at 1 over ISO. If you do that perfectly, you'll come up with a great exposure. Notice that in all of these, all of these examples are list, uh, that are listed are, are art and romance, Spheres of life that we often attribute as the the things of unfettered freedom and unrestraint. And yet we see in all of them, without some basic parameters, we don't get romance, we don't get art, and we don't get beauty, we get chaos. It's only when musicians operate within that major scale that we see masterpieces born. It's only when people operate within that, uh, that perfect formula for an exposure that you see a beautiful photograph, and on and on and on. True freedom isn't a complete absence from restraint. 
Tim Keller put it this way, freedom is not simply the absence of restrictions, but rather consists of finding the right liberating restrictions. The area in which we were meant to operate by which we experience wholeness. You wanna know what those right parameters are? Look no farther than Jesus Christ. Who said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. True freedom for the Christian consists in battling the old self, the flesh, and submitting to Christ through the Spirit. That is where you will experience the freedom that you were destined for. You will experience wholeness, fulfillment, satisfaction, and what it means to be truly human as God designed you to be. If you have been raised, put to death that, and put on this new way of life. Easier said than done, but if you know Jesus Christ, first, most important step, you're able to do this in his power. He has already effectively done it. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by our flesh, God did by sending his son. Christ died in the flesh so that we can die to the demands of the flesh. Christ was raised to life in the body so that we could experience life in our bodies. Everything we have has been made possible by Christ's death and resurrection. Our ability to live the life of faith is inextricably tied and linked to Christ's redeeming power. We cannot live except by the power and presence of Jesus Christ. So linked is our ability to live to Christ's life that Paul would say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul, gone. It is no longer I that live. But the life that I now live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God. You have a new life. You haven't been erased in your identity. You've simply been filled and brought to true life in the Son of God. And when that happens, and when we pursue it, and when we walk in it, and when we arrange our life and the furniture of our hearts and minds and bodies to align itself with those things by the power of the Holy Spirit, we experience change that whets the appetite for more. We experience change that causes us, in us, to see Jesus is better than anything I've ever chased after and I want more of him than ever before. To put it in the words of a famous hymn, uh, hymn writer, Charles Wesley, who penned this hymn on the heels of his own conversion, said, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. May that be a description of us all, in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, as we sing, May the love of the Father fill our hearts with the knowledge of what you have done for us and what you continue to want to do for us. Made available in the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. 
as we sing, I pray that our chains would be broken today. I pray that our habits would begin to be reformed. I pray that our minds would be renewed. I pray that our desires would be changed. I pray that our dreams would expand. I pray that our purposes would be realigned. I pray that our longings would be wedded. Perhaps some of us have been satisfied with eating crumbs off of the ground, so to speak. I pray that today we would experience a full meal. As Jesus, you said so perfectly at the Temple Mount, if anyone is hungry, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and eat and drink. And to him who believes, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I pray that that would happen today. In the name of Jesus, amen.